Hello, welcome to the Trainer Tools podcast. This is part two of a discussion with Christina Gad about accelerated learning. If you haven't listened to part one, please go back and do so. Otherwise, this won't make a whole lot of sense. Otherwise, here we go. Let's move on to the third one. Okay, so the third one is about the learners. So what do you need to know about learners and variety in your learning interventions? Um, And this is a really interesting one because I, at least once a day, come across something which talks about learning styles and maybe catering for learning styles, maybe even designing your um, learning so that it suits people's learning styles. And people mention all sorts of things like visual auditory kinesthetic, they mention um, Honey and Mumford, they mention Kolb. Um, So there has been quite a lot of research um, about learning styles. Um, Visual auditory kinesthetic, just to bottom this one out, Um, those aren't learning styles as much as ways in which our brains take in information and people get confused that you know you've got kinesthetic learners or auditory learners or visual learners now John Medina uh, in his book 10 brain rules he actually states vision trumps all other senses and so it's sort of like when you think about that when he says that and that's to do with how the brain works you think well how can you have just a purely kinesthetic learner or an auditory learner or whatever? Um, and most of the research is now saying that we can learn in most um, styles for any period of time, that we have preferences. And I think this is where people get confused, is that we all have our own preferences as to how we'd like to learn. So you'll get people who are activist learners who say, oh, I need to learn by doing stuff. So let's give an example. If you had say, a course on, say, financial crime or whatever, and it was all to do with activities um, to suit these activist learners, and you never reflected, um, you never looked at some of the, the rules or how you're going to apply it to your workplace, would those activist learners actually ever really learn something um, fully. Now I've got a, a really good example of, of somebody who um, I was on a program, I was, I was delivering a program, it was an eight-month program, train the trainer program, and uh, she was a, an activist as a learner herself, but she was a trainer, and she said, oh, well, I love to get involved, you know, she was always the first to volunteer for activities and everything, and one of the first thing I, things I said at the beginning of the program was about uh, reflecting and, and becoming better learners, that actually this is something um, that we all need to help our learners to become, is to become better learners, and you learn better by learning in a, in a bigger variety of ways so she as an activist said well what would that mean for me and I said well if you are an activist you probably struggle to reflect and she says well I never really reflect I just love you know learning new stuff and moving on to the next thing and and I said okay well maybe something that you could try over the next month until we next meet is actually just reflecting on what you've learned you know five ten minutes what have I learned write it down and then see what happens. Well, the next month that I saw, she was absolutely buzzing. You know, she was sort of saying, you know, I can't believe I've learned so much this last month. 
And I did have a chuckle to myself because I thought, well, actually, she's probably learning all the time. But the problem is, is because she's not reflecting on it, she's not actually uh, recognizing what she's learned. And so um, when we think about David Kolb's cycle, you know, he wasn't saying that, you know, we should just, um, you know, cater to whatever uh, preference you had. He said what we should do is do something, reflect on it, make sense of it, and then adapt it to the next time when you need to use it. And so what we really need to do is get away from telling our learners that they are an activist, a pragmatist, a theorist, or a reflector, and reinforcing uh, that, that, that they have to learn in that way and instead saying to them, okay, you may have a preference for being an activist, so that means you're going to have to work harder at reflecting. You're going to have to work harder at maybe um, discovering some of the theories that are behind uh, this learning. Um, and so what we should be doing as uh, learning development professionals is actually helping our learners to become better learners. And variety is the key for me. Can I just interject there a second? Because this, yeah, this is one of those cases, you know, that we talked about at the beginning of this podcast and we said it's great when you actually read something that turns out to be, means that you, you've always been correct about what you've been saying. I've been saying this about learning styles for so long. I've been right. getting so frustrated with people that are activists going, oh, I can't reflect. I just need to learn by doing. I find learning styles, the, the Honey Mumford learning styles, in that sense, quite dangerous. Yeah. But I, I do like Kolb's learning cycle, and I do find that if you if you force yourself to go around that cycle, you really do learn quite effectively. Yeah, and, and to be honest though, John, Honey and Mumford said, said the same thing, that you should be going around that cycle, you should be doing those things, um, and people just get locked in. I mean, I had probably one of the most difficult participants uh, in my whole career, which is over 25 years, a, a few years ago, maybe about four, five years ago, because she insisted that the way she learned was in a particular way. And what I was trying to get across to her was the fact that actually you need to broaden the way that you learn to, to learn better. But she was so fixed in on this, she couldn't see that. Now, by the end of the program, uh, not by what she said, but the, by the way what she did, she did sort of acknowledge that. She sort of stepped short of actually sort of saying that she agreed with me, but um, she, by her actions, you could tell that she did actually, you know, believe that. Um, and so we can draw from each of these models. So, for instance, you know, visual, audio, kinesthetic, try and make sure that you've got visuals, try and make sure that you're doing some discussions, try and make sure that you're engaging emotions as well. Um, I, I like to um, use um, Howard Gardner's multiple intelligences to try and in inject some variety. So, you know, if you know what those eight um, intelligences are, you can sort of think, oh, well, which ones am I appealing to with, with this activity? And try and mix it up. And I always have a session plan and I always put in there what, what style I'm sort of like doing this in so that I can give a real variety. And, and for me, if, if there's any message to be out of this particular secret, it's make sure that your, your learning, your training, your learning interventions have got a great deal of variety in them. And if you've got variety, if you're not stuck, you know, for an hour doing presentation and then another hour doing something else, if you're chopping and changing, it means that most learners will be engaged for most of the time. And that's probably the best we can actually aim for is that most learners will be engaged most of the time. Um, so variety for me is the bottom line. 
Great, okay. And then that's covering the different intelligences, covering the different, what I actually call communication preferences. Yeah. About the vis- visual, audio, kinesthetic. Because as you said, it's how you take in information. Yes, yeah. And it is true that as human beings, assuming that we're, we are sighted, we, are, we tend to be very visual. Yeah. And then about the learning cycle as well. Let's not go into more detail on that now. Again, we, we are trying to get through quite a lot in this podcast. So let's just leave the third one there because we could go for it. We could spend days just talking about how, what that actually means in terms of practicalities and course design and course implementation. Absolutely. And we've got two more secrets to cover. I know. I know. And the fifth one's quite big as well, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're all quite big. They are huge. And this is why when I I did the research, I sort of looked at, I wanted to look at five broad areas. Because if you just do a little bit in each area, if, if all you did actually was the first secret, you would make a difference and you would accelerate learning. You know, if everything was focused on the organization, then of course, line managers and stakeholders will be brought in. So that will be helping to accelerate the learning through the organization. So but anyway, let's let's not go back to that one. No, no, let's not do that. Well, we've done that. We put it in context of the business organization and thought about what the learners want to achieve. Yeah. As a process, we've been a facilitator, not a trainer. So we've got people engaged, got them talking, got them thinking for themselves. Yeah. We've now talked about different kinds of learning styles. So we're ticking off different, we're really getting into psychology here and about the different ways different people approach learning and, and receive information. And we're going to talk about the environment next. We are, yes. And this is something that um, has been fascinating me because it is one of the myths that accelerated learning is all about the environment, really. It's about posters, fiddle toys and music. And although it's a part of it, it's not the biggest part. But um, an interesting thing that's been happening to me is a couple of years ago, um, I designed a, a completely different way of doing train the trainer called the learning loop. And the environment is very, very different to a normal classroom. When people walk in, there's a table right in the middle of the room with the board game on it and around the table, around the room there are other tables with activities on. Um, I usually have lots of posters, I usually bring loads of resources for people to look at and a common reaction when people walk into um, the training room is wow. And I've sort of like stopped people and say, why did you say wow? I've also sort of like afterwards said what's had the biggest impact? People have said the environment, the classroom when I walked in. Um, And it's been fascinating me because I thought the physical environment, yeah, it's great to arouse curiosity. One thing that somebody said back in, I think it was about um, March or February, I was doing um, a two-day learning loop with uh, Oldham Council. And one of the things that a trainer said that that the classroom had had the the biggest impact on, and I said, oh, why has it had an impact and what impact has it had on everybody else? And one lady said, it made me feel valued. And I was really blown away with this because, you know, this is a physical environment having an emotional effect on, you know, what I could see as one of the learners and the others seemed to agree with it. And um, and I said, tell me more about that. She said, well, when I came into the room and there was so much, you know, interesting stuff, there were posters, there were resources, it made me curious, but it made me feel that whoever had set this classroom up had gone to a lot of trouble for me. Um, And I said to her, I said, well, I hate to burst your bubble, but I haven't done it just for you. And and I actually reuse a lot of these posters. uh, So I don't do this for everybody. So I didn't go through an awful lot of trouble. But, you know, it had an impact on her. So this connection between the physical environment and the emotional environment that you're creating, it's, it's started to really fascinate me, you know, with this setup that I'm using. 
Um, now, the other part is, is the social aspect as well. And I have stopped using an icebreaker uh, because what I'm trying to do when people come into the room is get them as ready as possible for learning um, when they come in. So what, I, what I'm doing in, for instance, um, the lead up to any event is preparing the learners to learn. So I might set them for activities. For instance, I'm, I'm going to be down in the Midlands next week with a group and we're only able to spend a day together. And so there was so much stuff that, that, that needed to be covered and done. So I have set them some tasks beforehand. But I've been setting up um, that sort of environment. It's a social environment because one of the outcomes for this particular group is that the L&D lead there wants more collaboration. And so what I'm trying to do is create that social environment. So I set them a task. I said to them, there's a mission should you choose to accept it and they have an awful lot of training that's given to them and it's usually very powerpoint heavy so their mission is just to uh, think of uh, they've got to think of um, 24 ways to avoid death by powerpoint um, but they've got to do it collaboratively and it's got to be 24 unique ways and so that's setting up a social environment so for me the environment's a lot more than just the physical environment when they walk in although that's in that's important and it's also a great way to get that childlike curiosity that we seem to ignore these days in the training room. We seem to have gone from, you know, primary school where it was all it was all about curiosity and bright colours and, you know, we are curious um, creatures. And so we've moved away from that. And so I try and, uh, you know, for my environments to make them curious and make them interesting and um, childlike but not childish and I think that's the important thing because some people might see say some of the fiddle toys as being childish but actually you know there's a really good reason why you might leave fiddle toys on the table and some people who are very sort of twitchy you know and need to be moving may find just that sort of fiddling with something, feeling something, stimulating their, their, um, a different part of their brain actually helps with their concentration. And so uh, for me, as I said, the, the environment is three parts, physical, emotional and social. Can we just, uh, well, first of all, I can, I can fully agree that as someone who never sits still for about more than three seconds, that fiddly toys are actually quite helpful uh-huh. in terms of concentrating. I spend the entire time fiddling with them. Yeah. And it does help me. It genuinely does. But you said that there's physical, emotional, and social. Yeah. Do you want to just give us an example of what you mean in each of those categories? Just a quick example. Yeah. Of what you would expect to see in a great training room that ticks each of those boxes. So a physical one. When they walk in, they, you know, you've got some bright colors, maybe some posters, something around there. I sometimes have um, a box, a beautiful box, beautifully wrapped, and um, it sits on my table for a while. Just curiosity. And people at some point will say, what's in the box, Chris? And I might have some treats in it. I might have some questions in it. I might have an activity in it. It's about physically putting something in which will arouse curiosity. So that's the physical environment. The emotional environment is um, it 
that happens before they even come. And so in the joining instructions, in any sort of pre-work, setting expectations, saying, you know, come with an open mind. Um, what, what will you be doing? What won't you be doing? What are we trying to get out of this? So it's setting their expectations. It's also um, allaying any fears as well. So those of you who have got lots of experience, we want to we want you to share it. Those of you who've got least, then, you know, come and learn from everybody. Um, and that it's going to be a safe environment to experiment as well. So that's the emotional one. And then the social one, because collaboration within organizations doesn't always happen as, as often as uh, we would like it to, set them some task. It doesn't have to be onerous, but set them a task, get them to come up with a list of, I don't know, 30, 40 things or whatever. And because there's maybe 10, 15 people in, that means that there's only a few things they have to actually contribute to the list, but they have to work together. And then somebody has to coordinate it. So the social bit is about actually, do you know, collectively, we can do an awful lot more than if we actually had to come up with that list of 40 things or whatever completely on our own. So it gets people used to the fact that actually collaborations are a great thing. Okay, so let's move on to the last one. And that was around how the actual brain works and how it receives information, learns. So we've done psychology, now we're going into neuroscience. So we're kind of covering quite a lot in this podcast. We are, we are, and it's a whistle-stop tour, and, and I will never say that I'm a neuroscientist or even, you know, an expert on how the brain works at all, but what fascinates me is understanding the key things about the brain that will help us to help our learners learn better, but also to improve uh, the retention of information, because at the end of the day, if our learners don't retain what we've actually um, been learning about, then again, what's the point? Even if it is business focused, even if it is learner centered, if it's not easy to remember, then they're going to forget it and it's a waste of time. So for me, um, I have been fascinated. There's been a real um, upsurge in um, people looking into neuroscience. And I mentioned um, Stella's book on neuroscience and learning development. Um, I, I really like the book because it's in, in very simple terms. Um, you don't have to be a neuroscience uh, neuroscientist to actually um, be able to understand it. For me, um, the bits that I find really interesting and exciting are the bits which confirm things that I've been doing for years that are actually right and carry on doing them. And also those bits are, oh, these are new bits. Um, I've got to do more of that. So for me, it's the application, not being a neuroscientist, that's actually the important bit. So when I talk about the brain is what are, what are the key things perhaps that you need to uh, remember about learning and the way that the brain works in order that you can make the learning experience the best possible and for, for the learning to be sticky. And just a very, very simple thing, the simplest of all is repetition. And, you know, if I run a workshop with some trainers, I, I make a joke about it during, you know, two, three days, whatever it is, and I'll say repetition is good. And then another time I'll say, and what did I say about repetition? It's good. Repetition, and I'll mention this several times so that they get the point, you know, repetition is good because what it's doing is, it, you know, when you repeat things, it's moving from short-term memory, which is very, very small in comparison to long-term memory, and it's moving it into long-term memory. And if you repeat things over a period of time, so having reviews 
after the learning as well. So I have um, a 24-hour review that I send out after I've done any training. I then have um, some for the weeks following that. And also some of the research has been pointed to the fact that if you do um, a review after three months, after six months, and then a year, then that really does embed the learning. Uh, but one of the key things is that repeating stuff, it may feel like you are going over old ground, but it actually really, really does help. And that's one of the simplest ways to actually help your learners to learn. Another one that that I picked up, and again a very simple one, is about dopamine, um, and it's it's part that it plays when you're learning. Now, if you um, if you perceive that you're going to get some sort of a reward, dopamine gets released into your bloodstream, and what that does for you is it gets your attention. So, if you think you're going to get something out of it, then it grabs your attention. That's what dopamine does to you. Too much dopamine can get learners a bit giddy and make them overexcited. And actually, it's sort of almost like a, a trance-like state. They can end up forgetting what they've actually learned. And I've seen this in some trainers who are very highly activist type trainers who are into all about the activity and the learners are buzzing by the end of the session and they're going oh it's fantastic and then you try and quiz them about what they actually learned from it they're going I don't know but it was great it was really good fun and I really enjoyed it and you know Sue was brilliant at doing this so there's a fine balance between the right amount that sweet spot of the right amount of dopamine and that that curiosity that sort of reward what what's in it for me and too much. And so um, the other thing that came out of some of the CIPD research, which again was something by accident that I, I've done, but it confirms what I'm doing is right, is that when people get uncertain rewards, uh, especially adult learners, they are more bought into the learning process than if they know exactly what, what they're going to get out of it. And somebody gave me a really um, nice example um, they were on a cruise and they were um, one of the um, evening entertainment activities was um, a quiz night. And um, so on this cruise, um, they were told that there would be a prize for the winners at the end of it. And so they didn't say what the prize was. And so they were all very excited about it. They were all very um enthusiastic about the quiz and probably through their minds they were going through oh we might get upgraded to the stateroom or we might get um you know mediterranean uh, a caribbean cruise or, or whatever so through their minds they're sort of like you know thinking of all sorts of things um, and at the end of the game um, at the end of the quiz um the winners got some key rings which were very underwhelming now had they told them probably they were going to just get some key rings they probably wouldn't have been as enthusiastic so so that was a nice story to illustrate how, you know, when rewards are uncertain, people would be more bought into um, an activity than if they know exactly um, what they're going to get out of it. Um, and one of the things by accident that I've done, and this sort of confirms it in, in the game that I do, the Learning Loop game, is that um, when we're playing the game, um, people can get anything between one and five points for the answers that they give. They never know, but they're always really competitive against each other. And um, and I think it's because there's that uncertainty um, in that reward and, and, and that research just sort of backs it up. So, so lots of really, really interesting things that are coming out. Have we got time to just mention a couple more, John? Yeah, go for it. I'm, I'm interested to know just a little bit more about your Learning Loop game as well, but I don't think we 
have time now, but perhaps we can provide a link on the website or something to give people more information about that. Okie doke. So um, another interesting fact is that years ago we used to think that um, once we got to a certain age, basically our brains were just turning to mush and, you know, they wouldn't um, adapt and grow. And that's just not true. You know, that um, neuroscientists are talking about the fact that we've got this neuroplasticity that brains can expand and grow. And they've shown that for London cabbies, um, there's a part of the brain called the hippocampus which grows the more um, roots they start to, to learn. And so they've actually done that through um, MRI imaging. Um, so that's interesting because people will come with an attitude of, oh, you know, I find it really hard to learn. It's just a certain age I'm at and everything. So if you get people over a certain age coming on your workshops to say, oh, well, you know, it's all very well. But it's a myth that, that we stop learning. So, you know, you can say to, to your learners, actually that's not true it's actually you know a lot of it's about attitude you know if you if you think you can you're probably right if you think you can't you're probably right as well so that's another interesting thing yeah um, that is yeah. really interesting yeah because people do quite often say that i've been doing it this way for too long i can't learn a new way now especially with your examples about it a good example Yes, yeah, absolutely. There is something about unlearning as well. Um, sometimes when people have been doing stuff for a long time, you have to almost unlearn it. So that's might that might be the thing that they find difficult to unlearn that thing before they can learn the new one. But it's not true that they can't actually relearn to do something. I think that's the thing is people will say, I'm not any good at learning these days or my mind is like a sieve or, you know, um, I've been losing uh, brain cells, you know, at a rate of whatever. I think I just seem to remember that, you know, when I was a student, people used to frighten us by saying, you know, every time you have a glass of wine or a glass of beer or whatever, you lose so many brain cells. So, yeah, I never became a heavy drinker. So maybe that was what, what it was. Um, the, the One of the last things I wanted to mention in terms about the brain is that I love using stories in my um, training that I do. Um, and stories engage people at quite an emotional level. Uh, and when you engage the limbic system, which is where the emotions lie, uh, people are much more receptive to learning if you engage people in a way that um, there are negative emotions, basically it's a blocker to learning. Um, and what happens is that the prefrontal cortex loses some function if people are um, if people are frightened or scared or worried or whatever. And so stories are a great way of engaging people, engaging their emotions. Um, you know, it could be as an introduction to introduce why this particular learning is useful for them by telling them a story about previous learners. It could be just a fictitious story that you've made up. But what I find when I'm telling stories quite different to when I'm just simply telling people something is if I say to people right we're, I'm going to tell you a story now is everybody ready there's the sort of like their shoulders drop down their eyes become engaged completely and focused on me people know what they're going to do when they're listening to a story because we have been nurtured you know from an early age into being told stories and so they really engage at um, an emotional level. 
So using stories can be quite a safe way as well of delivering a difficult message. You know, you might tell a, a cautionary tale about somebody who's done something in a particular way um, and actually what the consequences were, rather than saying, well, if you do it this way, this is what's going to happen to you. And so, again, I just think stories are a great way of um, engaging people at a much deeper level and um, it's an underrated way of getting the message across i think that's a really good point i think they are really good and i just give a shout out to a previous podcast with larry reynolds on on storytelling yes. and they've actually got one coming up with um, samantha mathis about how to write your own stories as well which is uh, sitting ready to go at some point in the future yeah and larry's a great storyteller yeah and it, you know that's a really good podcast i really urge people to go back and listen to that one because stories are a really powerful way of engaging people, as you say, emotionally, but in a very memorable way, because the narrative just helps with the whole memory. And then that can lead into discussion, which obviously gives you the kind of social side as well. Yeah. But I just want to give a note of caution on that. You can overuse them. Yes. Yeah. And I think, especially if the story is how great I am as a trainer. Yeah. And it's one story after another about how brilliant you are. It can get quite wearying. It can do, and and I think you know you've got to you've got to balance it between the types of stories you tell. I know Larry in, in his podcast talked about different types of stories, and he's got a very simple um, structure. It's a six part structure which I've used um, for actually putting stories together, um, and I've used it with with trainers to sort of um, say to them, okay, so if you had a story to tell about this, you know, about um, something that had happened and it's got a good outcome, just use this framework and practice. Um, telling that story and that framework is so lovely to just give you that succinct story rather than somebody rambling on for minutes and minutes you know you can get a story across in, in just say you know 60 seconds or whatever using that very simple framework but um, yes I would urge people to look at, at um, revisit Larry's um, podcast as well because I found it really interesting well great well thank you for that let's just quickly summarize what those top five were the, the five secrets yeah Okay, so number one was about having business and learner objectives. Yes. And then number two was around being a facilitator rather than a trainer. Yeah. Number three is about different learners, learning styles, and the variety that you need to appeal to all different, not only just types of learner, but also the different types within us, and the fact that we all need to go around learning cycles, and we all take in information in, um, visually and kinesthetically and through through our ears, etc. Yeah. The fourth one is about the environment. So it's the physical environment, the emotional environment, and the social environment. So creating that environment where learning can really happen. And then the fifth one is about understanding the brain and the way the brain retains information, the way we, the way that we learn. Okay, yeah. Was that a good summary? That's an excellent summary, John. Definitely. And thank you. Top marks. Thank you. Well done. Thank, thank you very much. I was, li I was listening, you see. You and, were. And I'm quite good at retaining information because that's one of the advantages of being in this job is you do actually learn how to learn. You do. And I think because it's just five key things, I've tried to make them punchy. And when I when I teach people about those five secrets, I do have visual prompts as well, which we obviously can't have in this podcast. But I have some visual objects that I put into a, a nice velvet bag and I take them out when I'm talking about various secrets. So these five prompts um, help people to remember. But you've done really, really well, even without those prompts. I appreciate your positive feedback. That's all right. So that was just a very high-level whiz across these five secrets. In the future, we may record future podcasts where we go into a lot more detail on each of those. But thank you very much, Christina. That was really, really interesting and I think really valuable stuff. It's been my pleasure, John. Thank you. Thank you for asking me. So that was me talking to Christina Gad about accelerated learning. 
As I said there at the end, we are thinking about developing a series of podcasts about each of the secrets to go into a lot more depth. I'm sorry about some of the sound quality, which wasn't quite right. I was experimenting with some new software and new recording techniques. As with all experiments and all learning, sometimes it doesn't work, but I hope it was okay.